You're listening to episode 162 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am so happy you tuned in to today's episode. Whether you're a longtime listener or this is your first time here, a very warm welcome. We have Tao Lei on the show with us today. She's a literary agent at Dykstra Agency and represents children, young adults, and adult fiction novels across all genres. Before we jump right in, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet, I would love for you to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show. And whenever you have some free time, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and a review. From what I hear, it helps our show become more visible to new listeners and every bit helps to get the word out about 88 Cups of Tea. So thank you so much. On that note, I'd love to highlight one of our listeners who is so sweet to take the time to write a very thoughtful review for us on Apple Podcasts. This storyteller's username is JM Stories, and they wrote, 88 Cups of Tea is my favorite podcast ever. Host Yin Chang delivers with wholesome conversations that respectfully unpack and explore the personal and professional experiences of storytellers, ranging from writers to artists to literary agents and more. Yin has a unique capability of talking to each one of her guests in a fun and relatable way that always keeps the listener in mind. Hence why I always feel like I'm in the room where the conversation is happening. Five stars just aren't enough for this inspirational and intensely human podcast. Thank you so much for all that you do, Yin. Keep being awesome. Wow. Thank you so much so much for your review. I am so happy to hear you find inspiration from the show, and I am so happy to have you in our community. Thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to write such a thoughtful review. Now for today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Four Sigmatic, for supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. I am so excited about this partnership. Four Sigmatic is a superfood company whose mission is to take over the world with their delicious coffees and teas that are all made with functional mushrooms and adaptogens. I'm going to get into all the details about what that means at the end of the show, so be sure to hang around with me to hear more about these guys. Our storytellers receive a special 15% off, so be sure to head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea, and that's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash 88 cups of tea, or use our exclusive discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. On to today's guest, Tale is a literary agent at the Dykstra Agency, and she represents children's books and young adults across many genres. In the adult realm represents romantic-leaning fantasy and light science fiction. Tao's clients include New York Times best-selling fantasy author Roshni Chakshi, New York Times best-selling contemporary young adult author Cynthia Menon, indie best-selling picture book author illustrator Jesse Sima, and many more. In our conversation today, we dive deep into how Tao found her passion for stories and the steps she took to become a literary agent. 
We discuss how she learned how to sell manuscripts and we walk through different kinds of book deals. And we get into details like what subrights are in contracts and we shine some light on the financial side of being a literary agent. Later in our conversation, we talk about commercial hooks and query letters, her experience as a marginalized literary agent and a champion for representation. Tao unpacks some of her favorite query letters and why they stood out to her and an important FYI, the PDF of the query letters is available for you to download over at her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Tao dash lay. If you're curious to learn more about literary agents, how to best query literary agents to find representation, or if you're thinking about becoming a literary agent yourself, you will love this episode. Okay, now let's jump right in. Hey, listeners, guess what? We have Tao Lei on the podcast with us today. She's one of your most requested literary agents to have on the show, and I am so happy that she accepted our invitation. Thank you so much, Tao, for spending your Sunday with us. I know that I mentioned that a little bit when we were chatting before hopping onto our interview, but I know Sundays are usually a very, very special day for everyone to unwind and relax from work. So thank you again for your time and a welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is my first podcast interview, so I'm excited to be what? here with you guys. <laughs> I am very honored. Thank you so much. And and I'm sure our entire community is very honored and feeling very, very grateful as well. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. Um, let's jump right in. And Tao, I'm, I'm excited to just learn more about your love specifically for storytelling, how that got started, and before we'll weave our way into getting more into how you got into literary agenting. So let's first start with storytelling. I don't know if you had a love for writing yourself first or just reading. So it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, my love for books in particular came from my grandfather. He was the one that took me to libraries every day after school. He was really the one that kind of took care of me and my siblings when my parents first immigrated here and were working two jobs and we didn't see them at all. And, you know, oftentimes we needed like a place to go, the park or the library and such after school. And I fell in love with the library and he would always make me choose at least five books to bring home every day. We didn't have enough money to go to bookstores and buy books, but the library was an enormously important resource, I think, for families like mine was. And I just remember reading and burning through those books so quickly with him. It was how he... You know, he felt like he was teaching us to keep up with like, you know, native English speaking kids. I was an ESL student, too. So like the books and the fiction and like all the stories I read, um, I fell in love with Dana Wynne Jones, for instance, oh. who wrote Howl's Moving Castle. Yes. Um, which later on became a Ghibli film, which I also adore. They're very different beings, but I love them a whole lot. But, you know, that bonding time with him just kind of made me fall in love with storytelling. As for writing, I'm not a writer. I'm very much a reader, but I <laughs> remember fan fiction. And I fell into fan fiction from watching Sailor Moon way <gasps> back when. It was my first foray into fanfic was through Sailor Moon. And I remember reading a lot of it and writing my own very bad fanfic. <laughs> 
Um, and I realized I was not so great at writing them so much, but I loved reading other people's stories and things like that. And I even became a beta reader for some fanfic writers back in like high school. My friends loved K-drama and things like that. And they would write like K-drama fanfics and I would read them <laughs> and give them comments. And um, I think that was my first foray into like really loving the written word, really. Oh my God, I love that. And how are you? Are you and your grandpa still very close? Extremely. So he used to live with my mother and father, but since my grandmother passed and he's the only one left, he's living now with my aunts and I come visit him every week. So we're so incredibly close. I actually recently read him Love Z, which is a picture book I read. And it was just such a nice bonding experience to show him like, hey, I helped make this book. (gasps) Oh my gosh. He's always been asking like what kind of things I do. And it's a little harder to translate a full novel. Like I've done a lot of YA novels and stuff, but it was really nice to be able to translate just kind of a briefer text in the form of a picture book to him. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your grandma's passing. And second, I love that your grandpa is so supportive, it sounds like. And (laughs) I think this is something that always fascinates me particularly because being Asian American being raised by immigrant parents, this is something it always connects with me when I have also fellow Asians on the show where I'm like, hey, how is your upbringing like? My parents, you know, my mom especially was always very encouraging of reading books, but never if if I were to kind of- Not to pursue as like a career, right? Exactly, right? Exactly. It's like, wait, wait, <laughs> hold up. You want to do creative stuff? Okay, you might as well be a beggar on the streets. You know, like that was yeah. like, especially my dad's mentality because he's more traditional Taiwanese. And my mom was like a little bit more relaxed. So I'm always so curious, but my grandpa, funny enough, he was the one who was the most supportive of me going for yeah. the arts, especially even something like acting, you wouldn't think a grandpa, our grandparents' age, being like, okay, go for it with all you got, you know? (laughs) But my grandpa was the reason why I was allowed to go and pursue acting and doing pretty well having that as a working career and having, you know, keeping my mom and dad quiet so they wouldn't, you know, kind of criticize or like, Uh, scold me as much because grandpa said yes, you know, so then they have to respect their elder, which is hilarious. Yeah, he was my cheerleader. Yeah. See, that's why we're so lucky we got our grandpa to back us up. I feel like it's such a unique relationship with grandparents too. Like yeah. the grandchild and grandparent relationship is very different from the parent-child relationship. Yes. Of course, my grandfather was always like, you know, trying to get me to like get ahead of school. You know, the whole reason why we went to the library was like I said, I was an ESL student. He wanted yeah. me to be able to keep up with like native speakers because yep. I didn't speak. It wasn't my first language. English wasn't my first language. And he like really had me practice spelling and things like that. But at the same time, I think he had more joy out of like seeing his grandkids kind of pursue passion stuff yes and so like in that way he was a lot more passionate about helping us follow those passions whereas I think parents are much more practical right they're like parents were working like two jobs you know Mm. they're working like really hard backbreaking stuff and so for them it's like the immediate future, it's like, please don't become like us. You know? yeah. follow, follow something easy. I want to see you at a desk job. Right. We didn't come all the way here so that you could repeat <laughs> what we're doing. We're coming here so you could do something else. Yeah. That's what my mom yeah. and dad always say. Um, That is so funny. By the way, I need to jump in and say that I was also an ESL student. Yeah. 
<laughs> Yo, for real, I remember I was always made fun of and teased, and like people had no idea what the hell I was saying. Like even my grandpa couldn't really understand me because my grandpa he's from Malaysia, so he can't speak Mandarin. But my my dad's mom raised me speaking. Taiwanese and Mandarin, and I was born and raised in New York. But because my parents were always working, such a mix of dialects for you. That exactly. So because mom and dad were working, no one else was taking me under their wing except for my dad's mom, who was only fluent in Chinese. So I was learning that as my first language, and also being raised a little bit first in Flushing, Queens. Where it's like you don't really need to speak English to get around at all. And my preschool, they were all like Chinese speaking and all of that. And then until my parents moved us out to Long Island, growing up from kindergarten up, and that's when I was teased pretty badly. Even my grandpa couldn't even understand what I was saying. He's like trying to talk to me, but he only knows like Malay and uh, Hokkien yeah. and like um, English. And then so, but he tried to speak to me in English, and then I would. Be like what? And I'm like speaking in Mandarin. Grandpa's like, wait, what? Like, so it was really funny. So I had to go to ESL, and then I just remember feeling the social pressures mm -hmm. from students around me who didn't look like me. Okay, I was like one of the only Asians at the time in that elementary school. I still remember, and I suppressed the language that I first learned, which was Chinese, mm. so much because I was teased and picked on so badly that I just pretended like I forgot Chinese to the point where I actually forgot it, which was sad. And wow. I picked it up again during my college years, like later on, because I really had the will to want to learn again. That was my personal experience with ESL was that mm -hmm. I realized as soon as I adapted into English speaking kind of language and like that culture, there was less teasing and less picking on and more acceptance you know like like all kids want that right yeah so I was like in ESL until like the fourth or fifth grade I can't quite remember right um, right but it was pretty far along like you know it wasn't until really in middle school I was like no longer pulled out of class to take lessons and I remember just being pulled out of class or like being singled out it was like a couple of us, which was in a way nice because I felt like I was not solely singled out. Yeah. Uh, I had another friend that kind of like, oh, we're going to go take our ESL classes together. But I remember feeling a lot of pressure yeah. to get out of that program. Like to really keep up. I remember when I did graduate out of the ESL program for my elementary school, my teacher made a whole big deal out of it when I came back after, I guess, fulfilling the test. I didn't even realize that was like the test to have me graduate from that program. Oh my God. But like having the whole class kind of like clap for me kind of oh. thing and I was like oh okay it was an interesting experience I still very much speak Vietnamese with my family I think it was the way to kind of connect with both of my grandparents my grandmother didn't speak as much English as my grandfather did and she was his wife she was very much like a huge part of our lives I still remember coming home after coming from the library and she would have cut fruit for us to oh, eat but yeah they were both really supportive I think my grandmother never really understood what I did to be honest but in a lot of ways I think she was proud of things that I could accomplish that, you know, I think for her, she she never could have fathomed. Oh, no, absolutely not. Our grandparents' age especially did not have the opportunities that we do right now. Forget about it. Even if this is something I've brought up in previous episodes before, even if they had the same smarts or are smarter than us and more even more hardworking than us, even trying to do what whatever we're trying to do in their countries, forget it. The system wouldn't even allow them to advance, you know, even yeah, if exactly. if they yeah. did 
incredibly well. So like to just even try and imagine these kind of opportunities is like out of their world. It's it's really so, it makes them so proud to see that they're we're able to carry on with the dreams that they probably one day had. And like, but I understand like, but your world though is so specific where even me, you know, I'm like our generation and born here and educated here. And I still am like, wait, whoa, like, you know. What is a literary agent? Yeah. (laughs) That's like so mysterious, man. It's like magicians. You know what I mean? So it's like, I can't imagine. I like that. I kind of prefer the term magician. We're book magicians. You literally are. You are a literary magician. And the thing is, I can't imagine how the heck you'd explain that to your grandparents. You know, they're like, wait, what? Yeah, I I basically didn't. (laughs) They were were very confused. Uh, I remember the first time telling them that I sold a book and they were like, oh, good job. And they were thinking I was literally at a bookstore selling or something like that um so so my family really didn't get what I was doing I think they're grasping it finally now after so many years of me talking about it but so I actually did not come into publishing intentionally at all what well as you mentioned before like with Asian families they tend to be very practical my major in college I was a double major in econ management science wait what and Chinese studies, which is very divergent <laughs> from anything publishing. Yes, I did not see that coming, but okay, holy crap. Okay, we need to get into this more. I was not a literature major. I took one science fiction fantasy class and that was for GE. <sighs> and that was the only, basically almost the only literature class I really took in college. And I was going to be like an accountant or something. That's what, what my parents really wanted me to become. It was a really stable yes, job. Of course. There's a lot of Vietnamese accountants. Yes. <laughs> they do pretty well. And I was just like, you know, sure, I guess I'll be the obedient daughter. I'll follow this path. I really fell into publishing by complete, absolute luck. So I graduated in 2011. And to be honest, the job market at that time wasn't great. I don't know if like any of you guys out there listening, like remember 2011 or if you guys graduated 2011, how, how it was like. But by luck, during my, I believe my sophomore year in college, my current agency, the San Dykstra Leary Agency was looking for an intern to kind of help them with their financial manager and their sub rights director. So being a kind of clueless undergrad, I was just looking for any job possible, like any job experience, because as you know, entry level jobs now need like five to 10 years of experience <laughs> to even get your foot through the door. So I was so looking for yeah. So I was just looking for any internship whatsoever that seemed even remotely close to what I could do. And I remember using like my keyword search was basically financial or finance or something like that. And somehow their internship popped up. And I was like, oh, interesting. This is at a literary agency. I wonder what that does. I was thinking like maybe they were like a nonprofit that taught English or reading or literature to like <laughs> kids or something like that. I wasn't really sure. I started to dig deeper into it when once I got accepted for an interview and I read up on them and I found out they represented Amy Tan. And I was just <gasps> oh. like, oh my God. They, you know, for a Asian American reader, I guess. There's no really any bigger name than Amy Tan. Agreed. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. So I was just like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. They like know Amy Tan. And that was really the reason why I really wanted the internship. Um, because oh I God. felt like, hey, this is an agency that might 
get me. Mm. And I was always still a very, very voracious reader. I read a lot of science fiction. I read a lot of fantasy. YA wasn't quite as big as it is now, but I definitely loved YA. And it was funny because when I interviewed for them, they were like, we don't really do YA. We do like, you know, adult literature. They do nonfiction. They do politics. They do history. They do like really important, very lofty books. Right. <laughs> My reading level and taste is going to be the right fit. Uh, but that was okay because they were looking for someone who can help them with royalty statements and uh, foreign sales statements and things like that. And I was like, hey, I actually know a little bit of this. It's kind of funny because our internship and all of basically all of our interviews for assistants or interns at our agency in the past has done like three tests when you kind of show up. We do like a math test, which is a quick calculation of percentages and oh commission. Oh my, I would fail so quick. <laughs> I was able to get a leg up on like all my other like competitors for that job because of that <laughs> test. So that's how I kind of got in. Like they picked me because I think I knew math and I could help their bookkeeper and financial manager. And that's really how I got started. It was really luck, honestly, like a complete, it wasn't a job I even knew existed. It wasn't like I was searching for the agency. I didn't know what a literary agency was until I started like reading about them before the interview but it felt like kismet, you know? Dang, what a crazy way of getting it. I've never heard that route into being a literary agent. I mean, right now you full on represent authors, you seek them out, they seek you. So how long were you in that finance department before you started finding interest and and speaking up and saying like, hey, so-and-so above me, can I look into segueing into becoming a literary agent to represent authors? Or did they come ask you you, your company ask you like, hey, we feel like you have this like intuitive knack. Do you want to try it out? I really did not know I would be a literary agent. I didn't understand how to become one. I really was just, I expected myself to be there because I was like, oh, I'm going to learn, you know, the finance things of a small company and maybe I'll move on. But what's great about our agency is that we're small enough that everyone is really super collaborative. So I was often being asked or was asked to do second reads for various agents, including my boss. Oh. And she would actually be like, hey, I remember you telling me that you like science fiction fantasy. And she, when she gets the rare referral from an author that, you know, recommended another author or something like that, and it was science fiction or fantasy, she would have me read it. And she was noticing that my uh, reading reports or my critiques of the manuscripts that she gave me were pretty good. And so she was just like super supportive. And she was like, you know, no one here is doing doing science fiction or fantasy. Do you want to maybe delve into that a little bit more? And I was just like, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But so many of my colleagues, for instance, Elise Capron, who is basically the super woman of our office and a major mentor for me throughout my entire career, was just super supportive. And she was just like, you know, give it a shot. Why not? And I was just like, I don't know anything about being a literary agent. Like, I don't know yet what my taste is like. And she's like, you won't know until you start reading. So I did. I started reading a couple of manuscripts. I fell in love with one. I you know, gave my boss the whole spiel about why I thought it was good. And she was like, sign your first client. You're kidding. <laughs> what? Eventually I sold my first book deal and 
then I just kept on going. And <gasps> here I am now. It was really, honestly, like, we don't talk enough about how this publishing industry is so much reliant on luck and timing. But also good work. Like, when you have that luck knocking on your door, you better be ready yeah. to just do your best because you showed up. From what I'm hearing and from what I'm understanding is that you're basically good at everything that you do. You know, like I said, I loved really specific stories and I felt like I was in the right place at the right time with the right skill set that was missing. You know, there were agents before me at the agency that did do YA, that did do science fiction and fantasy, but they left. And so when they left, they left a hole that needed to be filled. And as you know, in the publishing industry, it's so hard to get in because so often you need to know somebody, you need a connection. Mm. And I really didn't have any of that, but I came in like right when someone else was leaving, basically. And I think it's a really tough industry, honestly. So that's why I kind of want to say like, you know, anyone out there who's trying to get into the industry and is finding it difficult, it really is difficult. There's like so many barriers, you know, there's like unpaid internships that, you know, should be paid. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, assistant jobs that last forever and are like really low paying when, you know, you're doing a lot of work and living in very expensive cities. Do you mind me interjecting and asking, because this is so new to me, like I've, I've only had several literary agents on the show, but I find it so fascinating because there's this entrepreneurial aspect. Like you, I see you as an entrepreneur in your own way, you know? So I love that business side. So don't mind me if I start like jumping in and like poking holes and stuff like that, but- Feel free to do it. Thank you so much. And I, I know the community would be so excited to hear more and learn more too. Can you give me an example? Like what an intern would do, for example, would they be the ones like reading through all the slush piles and like writing notes and do they do more? Do they do less? So I think it depends on each agency. I can only speak for my own. In the past, we've had as an intern myself, It's and it's been a little while now, but uh, when I was an intern, I did things like read the slush, like go through the slush. If there was a project that caught my eye to bring it to the attention of like agents and like give a reading report about why. We did things like, you know, help out a a little bit with mail. There's an assistant that usually sorts through it, but we would be like the ones handing it off to people. Right. So things like that. And like learning about what we try to do a lot at our agency is to make it as educational as possible. And so I basically had like certain days where I would just be listening to the subrights manager talk about what subrights were, because, you know, a lot of interns that come to us, they have no idea how a literary agency actually runs. They actually have no idea what a royalty statement looks like. They don't even know what royalties really are. So it's kind of like that explanation process so that you can at least learn terms that'll help you get through to the next step of publishing. Do you mind me asking you to quickly explain what subrights means to me because I I no idea. Definitely. So what a subrights is is basically all the subsidiary rights that stem from that main book deal that you have. It could mean foreign translation, it could mean audio, it could mean ebook, it could mean film and TV. So basically all those rights that are kind of stemming from that original book deal. Does that make sense? Okay, got you. That's what interns hopefully are learning. Otherwise, it's like you get thrown into the world of publishing. They're using all of these terminology that is like kind of going over your head. Um, you know, I think at the least internships should be providing, you know, people with this kind of information so that they can understand what's going around 
them and be able to kind of, you know, show that they get the business and that, you know, they're good candidates. Okay, so that's very, very helpful to know. And then when you mentioned the assistants, they get paid, but very low. And what what ballpark are we talking about? Are we talking about like under 35K a year? Are we talking about like 20K a year, like round the ballpark? That's a good question. I think it varies, but I do very much recall like when I was an assistant and talking to other assistants, we were around that ballpark of under 35. (gasps) So you're in California, I'm assuming? Yes. So when you were doing the assistant job, were you in New York before that or were you all the time? Like, were you always in Cali? I was really lucky that I've always stayed in California. I surprised a lot of people by saying I've actually never been to New York City before. What? Yeah. You need to come (laughs) to New York, okay? I do. I do. I'm trying to make it happen, but I somehow tend to procrastinate because New York intimidates me a lot. It seems like a maze and I, I don't know. I don't understand public transportation because SoCal does not have public transportation, really. We drive. That's why we have so much traffic. And so it just completely intimidates me. But I do need to really make a trip out there. Yes, you do. <laughs> I'm going to have to interrupt really quick. When I moved out to LA for a little bit, I moved there and I lived there for about like eight years. The first two years, I was taking the public transportation because I didn't have a car. I was so used to the public transportation out in New York that I had that public transportation mentality. So I was getting around all of LA to all of my auditions and filming and all of that stuff with the train, like the subway yeah. system and the bus. And they would be like two hours late. They're so unorganized, no offense, but it was terrible. No, it is. Like our our transportation, public transportation sucks. It, it's the truth. <laughs> I'm not even trying to be biased. I think it's because I'm so used to that terrible public transportation. Public transportation now in other places make me anxious because I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have no control. Like the train could just break down. I'd be stranded. I agree with you a thousand percent because I was late two hours for an audition because the bus never came. Multiple buses did not come. Wow. That's my nightmare. Yes, it was (laughs) the worst. And so I still remember that I was doing that and then I ended up buying, finally buying my car after I booked a a big gig and I was able to buy a car. And that's when I was finally traveling around LA, like an LA person properly with the, yeah. with the car. And it was much, I, so I completely understand why there would be some anxiety coming to New York because it's like, <laughs> wait, if this is a system in LA, what the hell is it going to be like in New York? And it's 10 times bigger, like crazier yeah, in the city. Exactly. Like, so no, I totally get that. But that's insane. So is your company actually, where is your company located? I'm very confused. We are in Del Mar, California. That's where our office is. And uh, our boss originally came from New York, but she moved here with her husband. And it's what if you ever come to visit our office, um, it does have a view of the ocean from certain windows. Wow. It's like a walk away from a very sleepy seaside kind of village type of place. And it's just very laid back and lovely. I have to say, I feel very spoiled by it. Oh my gosh. Definitely not like a corporate office whatsoever. (gasps) We're a small, small team. Like at max, I think we have maybe like seven people in the office at one time. Wow. So we're really small and boutique but at the same time, like everyone, everyone really kicks ass, I have to say. Damn. Wait, so seven years and the company has been running. Well, you've been there since 2011. So remind me, how long has a company been been open for? I think my boss, Sandy Dykstra, opened it up maybe 
It's been over 30 years, I'm Damn. pretty sure. And it's seven people running this agency. And you're saying that that agency at the time represented Amy Tan. Do they still represent Amy Tan? We do still represent Amy Tan. Dang, <laughs> holy crap. What? Wait, only seven people are holding it down? How are you guys managing? You know, for that size of a business, like everyone wears multiple hats. You actually asked how I transitioned out yes, from yes. doing finance to agenting. I'm actually still the financial manager. Uh, I got promoted oh. to that position. So I handle the office's day-to-day kind of financial operations. I handle royalty statements, certain tax things. We do have like a, like a remote financial manager as well. She was basically my predecessor and she also helps handle certain things. But yeah, so I'm still, I'm still kind of doing that. <laughs> When you said that you fell in love with that manuscript and then that was the first book you sold, was it easier for you to understand how to make that deal because of your strong background and already being in the finance department in doing the finance stuff for your company? Because there was one agent that I had on recently, a few, actually maybe two months ago, and I was a little confused because it sounded like very confusing because she said that she wasn't really guided there was no time for anyone to really properly show her how to like make a sale or like to get get this deal and negotiate and all that stuff. So was the negotiations natural for you or were you guided and were you kind of handheld with, hey, this is a book that you love and you want to sell it. All right. This is how you go about making negotiations. This is how you go about picking up the phone. This is the kind of like what you say on the phone to the person that you're trying to sell it to. Like, how did that work? Again, like I felt really lucky to have great mentors. Yeah. Like I mentioned, Elise Capron has been amazing in that aspect. I remember having the first offer ever come to me and I was like, what do I do now? What? <laughs> like, la, 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 basically. <laughs> um, and she was like, all right, let's break this down and like what this means. And like, oh, like, you know, she was even able to tell me like, oh, this is a pretty decent deal. Or like, you know, these are, you know, advanced ranges from honestly, like $500 to six, seven figures. And I really didn't know much the very first time I did it. I was really like, what do I do now? I managed to get the offer. So I was able to be persuasive in terms of like, this is a good book, but now what? And so my colleagues were amazing mentors there. Jill Marr also is a senior agent at our agency. And she was able to kind of tell me like, oh yeah, so like look at other deals we've made, you know, as comparison. We have a thing in our office which is kind of like a dream book deal, basically. And it just basically tells us like what we should be asking about. Like we should be asking about payouts. We should be asking about if it's a multiple book deal, if it's uh, separately accounted or joint accounted, which I had no idea what those things meant. Yeah, I have I have no idea either. Yeah. So if you want like a quick and dirty description, yes, please. joint accounting is basically when you have multi-book deal, like either two book, three book, four book. When you have joint accounting, it means that the whole advance of all the books must be earned out before you can earn any royalties. Where separate accounting means that each book has their own kind of separate advance and they just have to earn out their own advance before you earn royalties. So of course, separate accounting is always better because you're getting money much, much sooner and you don't have to earn out this whole big 
advance you can earn out like for each book. So those were things that I kind of learned from all my colleagues and my boss. I remember like the first time I did an auction, she was the one who kind of like, all right, this is what you do. And, you know, she's she's can be a bit of a shark of an agent. So she would like tell me like, these are the aggressive things you can do if you want to be <laughs> bullish, you know, but she always like gave me the options like, but, you know, you have to do things like that's right for you. Like, you know, go with your gut feeling. <laughs> I have to say, like, I have heard other agents tell me like they're kind of just thrown into the deep end and they, you know, they sink or swim. I wouldn't say that our agency is super handholding. I think everyone has like a slightly different, you know, experience there. But I have to say that my colleagues have been particularly supportive when I was starting out and they still are. Like I still run to Elise and Jill when I have a project that I'm like, hey, you know, I would love your two cents on this. And that's what I really love about them. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. And I'm going to jump in again because here my brain is starting to like go And I can't help but wonder, just for example, you know, when you're talking about like negotiations and the offers and like you got a good offer. Again, I want to preface this by saying, I'm sorry if I sound so ignorant with these questions. But for me, the only background that I've ever truly had was through acting. And I know when agents are pitching us actors, they can say, hey, I'll give a very specific example. And this is I'm going to relate it back to how with your 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 job. I was in the middle of getting booked for this TV movie for Lifetime and Lifetime came with an offer. So my agent was like, oh, hell no. And then they pushed for three times what they offered because they then said, Yin has been in this and has been in this and this, 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 and we're listing out my credentials. Also, there's buzz going around her right now because she just finished a Disney feature film. And right now she is wanted for a a theater project right now. So if she takes your role, she would have to turn down that theater project. Definitely. Yeah. So it was really interesting to me to learn like, oh, wow, that's so fascinating that you can throw in like, oh, there's some buzz right around now because there's a film, her feature film is slated to release in the next few months. Whether or not that feature film did well or ended up not doing well, it was the matter of the buzz at the moment. So I'm going to tie this back to you, right? Let's say if it's a debut author who's obviously never had any work published, not even essays in like popular media outlets or whatever, but they create their own buzz, right? Because I'm noticing a Mm -hmm. lot of this. I notice a lot of people in my community for 88 Cups of Tea, they're so generous and so kind. They build their own community before they even have a book by really generously giving back to the writing community and really being there for them, not being like a shark about it, like truly nice people. But I see like word gets around about certain authors, right? And then Mm -hmm. when their debut, there's like word that their debut is about to come out. Whoa, the buzz starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I wonder when you're making these offers and negotiating, does it matter when the authors make their own buzz? Does that help to increase the value in a way? It completely does. And author's platform can be a huge way to reach the readership and the audience, you know, for a book. And so even if you're a complete debut, but you have like thousands and thousands of followers or, you know, you're very well known in like the writing community and things like that. Those are all such helpful things that I can use to, you know, negotiate or to help build even bigger buzz with your book. That said, like, I have to say in the end, though, it has to be the book. Okay. Even if you're like an amazing 
amazing superstar social media influencer, but you can't write a good book and you aren't finishing your deadlines and things, I could get you a book deal. But if you're going to become someone who's unreliable with deadlines and things like that, that could still jeopardize that deal and that career. For me in particular, I only take on books that I really do feel something for. Mm. As an agent, like I'm reading your manuscript probably like a dozen times, honestly. You can't read the same book over and over and over if you don't love it. I can't sell a book that I feel nothing for, even if like I've, I mean, I've turned down authors who've had huge platforms and such because I was like, you know, I know you could probably sell, but I don't feel anything. Mm. And I think that's what's kind of a bit of a difference in this industry where I think a lot of agents do still kind of choose with their hearts as well as, you know, their brain. You kind of have to like, be like if it was a Venn diagram, you have to be kind of like everything be commercial, but at the same time, like still have heart in that story. Like yeah. I have to I, I sign on authors for hopefully their career. I'm not looking for just one book. I'm not looking for one book wonders. I'm looking for someone who will have potentially a long, healthy career with me and I can continue to build and build with the next book and the next and the next. So I really have to believe in their writing and that, you know, I think the best books, the writers do leave a little part of themselves in there somehow. And because you can feel that you get invested in the books and the characters and the story. And that's what I'm trying to sell to the editors. I'm like, this is not, you know, even if it's a quiet book, you know, even if it's a book that doesn't make six, seven figures, Maybe it's like a much smaller deal, but it means something. Like, I think that does make a difference to me as an agent. This has been really eye-opening and it's just so fascinating for me to just have a peek inside. I I love these kind of conversations where I'm just like, whoa, that's so cool what you're doing. And it just... And learning from like about you too, honestly, like I didn't know anything about the acting or entertainment industry really. This is eye-opening for me as well. It's like, oh, okay, they do this kind of stuff. That's really cool. Right? Isn't that crazy? Who knows? Maybe down the line, you'll be ending up like representing actors in addition to authors. <laughs> and like, now this actually kicks in another question. So you just inspired another question. What about like, have you repped authors who then like their books are being seeked out to be made into films and and tv series and are you the one dealing with that as well or do you pass them on to someone more in like the tv film representation side yeah so our agency like i said has a sub rights director and she is the one that kind of handles all the film tv stuff in addition to you know foreign translation and audiobook and those other things but i do know that she works closely with film agents as well as handle deals directly herself so it kind of depends on the project and what level of kind of co-film tv agents we have like we've worked with icm we work with paradigm we work with william morris like uh, so many different film and entertainment agents. And I think for her, she works in tandem with them in like kind of providing like pitch materials and stuff like that and updates from the bookend. Right. And while they are the ones who are savvy about the entertainment side of like what a deal looks like, you know, they're more familiar with the contracts for film and TV and provide that kind of insights. And we share a commission with them. Oh, wow. Okay. Very interesting. I'm particularly like, wow, because as a working actor, I was representing 
represented by paradigm. And I didn't realize that they sound like they have a very strong side for literary things being made, adapted into TV film. I think ever since Harry Potter, everyone's like kind of hopping on the like, let's option. Well, it is a smart business move. It's like kind of just spreading themselves wider and wider to track, like bring in more. But okay, so this is a question I have too that I'm super curious because I'm like wondering if, let's say if we have a handful of listeners who are thinking about getting into the world of publishing and becoming, maybe dabbling into the idea of becoming a literary agent, but want to know how to like survive. Let's be real. Like financial struggles are a real situation that we talk about on the show. Yeah. So let's say that you and your author, right, that you discovered work on their book, but then you know, I'm not sure how closely you work with them. Some agents I hear are a little bit more hands-off. Others are very like, they read closely and give a lot of great advice and feedback because that's how their dynamic is. So let's just say that you are in a situation with an author where you give so much incredible advice and you really help shape the book into what it is like 10 times better than when you first came across as a manuscript and the author agrees and knows that would not be where it is without you. Then let's just say it gets pitched for a TV movie and gets picked up and all that stuff. So I'm confused. How do the the commissions there work? Like, does it go back to the company overall? Or because it sounds like that that other person being in charge of the subrights, then does that person get all the commission for taking care of it, adapting into TV film? Or do you still get, you know, a little bit because you were the first, because again, I'm just coming from my own experience. I know my manager at the time, no matter what, even if I found the project myself, they were entitled by contract to get 15% off of everything everything, even if they didn't do anything. So I do wonder, because you're there at the first step, you give so much of your heart and soul. I feel like for me, I think that you deserve commission for it, no matter where it goes. Do you know what I mean? So how does that work in your world from your experience? You know, there could be like a variety of different arrangements that other agents make with their agencies or with their clients and vice versa. But for me, our subrights director is paid a salary. She actually does not earn any commission. Oh. And so she works basically for the agency. And so the agency for any subrights that is film, TV, that's done with like a film agent, the total commission coming out of the author is 20%. And we split 10% each to the film agent and ourselves. And then like as an agent under the agency, I have my own arrangement with the agency to get a percentage as well of their share of the agency's 10% share. So that's kind of how the split kind of works in that aspect. Okay, got it. Okay, very fascinating. That's so interesting. Okay, thank you so much for getting into the numbers with me. I just got a little nerdy there and got very excited. About it. This is something that I've never really dived into that much. I think not many people talk about it. And like the thing is, I think it's also hard sometimes to to say it with such a with any authority, honestly, because it can be so different. Like I said, I'm only speaking from my experience. Yeah. Um, Other agents might be like, that's not how it works for us. Exactly. They could totally be true. You know, I won't say that anyone going into the publishing industry, this will be how it is for you. But usually there is some kind of arrangements that you kind of discuss with your agency. And you should know what that is before you start making deals. So that's my only advice is to make sure that, you know, you guys are in mutual agreement with each other and that's you you know what each scenario will yield oh my god that's so good so Tao if you don't mind I know that you're so sweet to agree to sharing 
exemplary query letters. Before we get to that, do you mind if I squeeze in two listener questions for you? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you so much. So the first one we have from Sherry Kramer. Sherry says many agents oh, <laughs> She said many agents like yourself mention commercial hooks. I understand certain genres, subgenres are better selling than others, but this commercial term is often used in relation to the hook, not the genre. What exactly does a commercial hook mean versus just a hook in general? Shouldn't a hook be compelling no matter what? Or is commercial a term that's more specific to the industry? That's a really good question. For me, the term commercial usually indicates a certain writing style, honestly, more so than a hook. And I feel like in the end, a hook should always be able to reflect the writing or the story because you don't want to misrepresent your book as, you know, if it's a literary book, you don't want to misrepresent it and call it commercial. That'll just throw agents off because they'll be confused when they start reading and they're like, this is not what I expected. So for me, commercial really means commercial hooks tend to be big in concepts. They tend to feel fast paced. They tend to feel a little blockbustery, although I hate to use that term, but they have like this feeling of being very like lots of action, lots of drama, um, and kind of just very dramatic and compelling. You're right that a hook in general should be compelling. I think there could be literary hooks that are indeed very intriguing and can definitely, you know, draw in a reader. I guess the difference is also like I've seen a lot of people use hooks that kind of references or like, you know, say it's in the vein of say like Terminator or something like that, which is like, you know, very com- a very commercial franchise, right? So in that way, that could be considered a commercial hook. I've never actually really used that term before. <laughs> For me, I think the most successful way you can go about trying to define your story as commercial is if it is actually written in a way that feels commercial, you can tell the difference between, say, you know, the Percy Jackson series versus something much more literary, like, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. Those are very different genres, but in the style of writing, you can just tell that one is probably more commercial than the others. That said, you can argue again that To Kill a Mockingbird is very commercially successful because it sold like hundreds and thousands of copies. Mm. So I wouldn't read so deeply into that term, to be honest. I think the most important thing with the hook is that it is, as you say, compelling, intriguing, and also that it accurately reflects your story. But if it's helpful and if it's relevant to reference like maybe popular commercial books or commercial movies that are, you know, kind of in the same vein as your book, then do so. That was a bit of a rambling. No, that was so good. Are you joking? I'm sure she is so thrilled right now. I'm just so happy that you answered that. So thank you so much. Okay, so now the next one we have, Anika Naeem. She said that you represent so many rock star authors and she'd love to hear your perspective on what it means to be a marginalized agent since agenting especially faces a significant diversity problem. It was very isolating. I would say that in the beginning of my career, I felt like one of the very few minority agents out there. It was hard back then to kind of push for books that everyone kept telling me were too niche 
or, you know, too specific. And it was just, like I said, kind of like lonely and like difficult and frustrating because it's like, but why? These books are so awesome. These stories are really unique and interesting. And, you know, just even the fact that people were having trouble pronouncing names of the characters, even though they can say Daenerys Targaryen, Mm. but they can't say like an Asian name. Mm. That was really frustrating. So as a marginalized agent, I have to say the industry still has a long way to go, but it's changed a lot. I feel like there were books that I couldn't even give away because they featured, you know, maybe bi or lesbian characters because they featured Asian characters or, you know, marginalized characters that were otherwise weren't seem sexy, hot, you know, in the more typical, I guess, like white gaze kind of way. So now to see so many stories out there that have brown kids undercover smiling, you know, like I have to say that was such a coup with getting when Dimple met Rishi having that beautiful cover with the girl smiling, holding the coffee cup. It kind of gave me the feeling like, hey, you know, you can be a brown teenager and pick up this book and feel like there's a happy ending for you. You know what I mean? There used to be not that kind of feeling I felt like in books. Like it's really hard to see yourself. And a lot of people go like, well, why is representation so important? It's because it's that isolating feeling when you're being continuously excluded from something, it's really hard to want to succeed. It's really hard to see yourself succeeding, having confidence, because you always see the hero as somebody that's not you. Mm. So I think to bring those type of characters, to bring the type of success for authors who are, you know, from a marginalized background to the forefront and, you know, being a Black author, being a bi author, being a trans author, being an Asian author, you know, a common nation of those things and seeing successes. It's like, hey, I don't have to be an accountant. I can go into a creative field and succeed. Um, There's other people like me. There's other people who will probably support me because they've gone through the similar things. So I think that has been an incredibly important part of like my journey and everything and why I continue to champion books that might be otherwise considered difficult. So, so good. All right. So now, do you mind if we jump into the exemplary query letters? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. It kind of segues well into that. Right? I know. I was like, this is perfect. (laughs) Two of the queries I chose, the reason why I chose them were because they were own voices. Not necessarily that I think marginalized creators have to write own voice. I just want to say that. Like, I think one of the worst things we can do with this, you know, push for diversity is put diverse creators into like a box Mm. where they can only write about themselves and their own experiences. I want diverse creators to be able to write about anything they want. I love that. I love that. So just wanted to put that out there. But in these two cases, two of the queries that I really enjoyed and want to share with you guys are own voices. And they both came to me in a way that's slightly different, and which is why I kind of chose these three queries. They all kind of came to me in different ways, which kind of shows how our industry with social media and technology is kind of changing a whole lot too. Back in the old days, I remember getting, as an intern, our office getting mailed like stacks and stacks of manuscripts, like hard mail, like snail mail. And we don't do that anymore. Everything's through email now or a form or, you know, online somehow, which I think makes us a whole lot more accessible 
mm-hmm. to people. Yeah. I think it does kind of help me do a better turnaround to everybody because I can, you know, auto reply to everyone so that they know that I received their work. At the same time, it also means a whole bigger volume of manuscripts and queries coming my way. And now there's like so many interesting avenues that we can kind of see work get pitched to us. For instance, the first query I'm going to talk about came via Pitch Wars. I was part of Pitch Wars. I can't remember what year this was. I should have like wrote down the date for it, but... Oh no, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was part of a Pitch Wars entry and it was for a middle grade contemporary book called What If a Fish? And it's by the author Annika Fajardo. And I sent over to 88 Cups of Tea a Word doc version of this so that readers can take a look. The first time I saw it, it was in a very short kind of pitch wars entry style where we had a very short pitch that was a paragraph. And then later on, we got an excerpt, which I loved. And from there, I asked for a query letter. So I'm going to go ahead and just like quickly summarize the pitch which is a story about a little boy named Eddie Eduardo, who is convinced that winning the Arne Hopkins dock fishing tournament will bring him closer to his dad who died when he was four. And with his father's fishing gear, his help from his older half-brother and his trusty encyclopedia, he's up for the challenge. But when an ailing grandmother in Colombia takes him miles away from home, Eddie finds himself far from ready and eventually further from his father. Immediately, I was just drawn to the idea of Colombia and this magical, beautiful setting. There were so many family elements in this kind of quick pitch that drew me to the story, the father relationship, a half-brother, a grandmother. I am really drawn to the non-nuclear families because so many family dynamics are different from the two mom and dad and 2.5 kids, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was just really nice to see kind of like a different representation of family here. And to see Columbia was something that I, in a story, was something I was really excited for. When I got the query letter from Annika, she had done a little bit of work on the manuscript already, I believe. And in the query letter, she uses comp titles, which is basically titles of books that have already published, usually within the last two to three years. And it helps kind of give a sense of what your query or your manuscript is like. And in this case, she used See You in the Cosmos meets Raimi Nightingale. Both, you know, beautiful books. We talked about a little earlier about commercial hooks and just hooks in general. This for me came off as like, this is not a commercial book. This is like a more maybe literary story, maybe like a quieter but beautiful lyrical written book. And that's exactly what it was. And what I really liked was in her query letter, she mentions that she's also half Colombian, half Minnesotan, which is what Eddie, the character, is also. And I just felt like there was a lot of authenticity in the writing and in the query letter, was very upfront about expectations. She was great in saying why, you know, she would love to send this to me and thanked me for kind of liking it on Pitch Wars. So that was kind of the reason why I was like, all right, I need to ask for a a full manuscript of this. Oh my gosh, amazing. Do you feel like Pitch Wars is something that's brought you a lot of authors lately that you've ended up signing? Or is that just like, because I always wonder what are certain different ways that literary agents find and hear about 
new authors? And I'm hearing so much about pitch wars. So the the typical way that you usually query an agent is by cold querying, basically. And it's through either sending them an email or doing a query form, depending on how the agents want to receive basically slush. So that is the traditional way. Nowadays with technology, with social media and everything, contests and Twitter pitches and things like that have kind of come up. Pitch Wars is one of that. Another one is DV Pit, which is how I got another query, which I'll talk about later. But these are all like basically online contests or pitch sessions, I guess, where you can kind of post or showcase your quick pitch and your query letter publicly, and agents can look at it and request work through that method. Is there any way, anything that you've noticed that have caught your eyes or like a certain pattern or like a certain way people phrase things, or it just depends truly on that specific project? I think it depends on the project. I think the best pitches are always when you have a great way to sum up the story's emotional stakes. You know, for instance, in this one, in What If a Fish, I knew immediately the emotional stake here was Eddie was feeling like he was disconnected from his late father. And he wants to regain that feeling of familiarity and that closeness with a father that he's lost. So that is what I felt drawn to because I feel like, you know, that parental relationship is always so important in middle grade, you know, especially for kids who might have lost a loved one or a, you know, God forbid, a father or mother. And for me, I just felt like that was such an important message and something that like many, many kids and people can relate to. So for me, having that kind of emotional investment is really important in a pitch. Oh, that was very helpful because for me, my brain works very technical. So it's good to hear that side. And Tao, if you don't mind, can we jump into the second query? Yes, definitely. So this was a pitch that came to me via DV Pit on Twitter. So hashtag DV Pit is a Twitter pitch contest that's specifically for diverse creators, you know, marginalized people with diverse backgrounds. And so this one came from Jessica Kim, and she posted a series of tweets that was about a 11-year-old Yumi, who is shy and nervous except when she does stand-up and steals the show. But her traditional parents don't know anything about her comedy. And the problem is Yumi wants to go to the new performing arts school. But if she does, she's going to have to come clean to her parents about her double life as a comedian. So that to me immediately grabbed me because as we spoke about earlier in this conversation or interview, Asian parents really don't understand creative aspiration. (laughs) And so to see a story kind of be so relatable in that way, I just knew I wanted to read it, especially because nowadays we're starting to see more diverse comedians kind of like be in the spotlight, you know? And it's just so nice because usually I don't think many, many people would have thought to become a comedian. It's a really hard industry itself. So to see like this kind of this story about a young, determined girl who really wants to do comedy and is usually shy otherwise, it like, again, it was that kind of like emotional pull for me. Like I could relate to her academic minded 
immigrant parents wanting her to, you know, do something more practical, like, you know, get straight A's. That's all you need to do. You don't need to (laughs) like talk on stage or perform. But to see her kind of like reach for her goals, I think that's really inspiring. You know, the query did a great job. Jessica did a great job of like comparing this book to like for the younger fans of like Gloria Chow's American Panda and like the humor of Millicent Min, Girl Genius by Lisa Yee. I love that she kind of also used these comp titles that were kind of like diverse as well, because it really accurately represents the audience for this book. Not to say that, you know, people like all backgrounds can read this. You don't have to be Asian American to read this. I think just the feeling of like a kid who really wants to work hard for what they want to do, even though their parents don't get it. Even if you're not an immigrant, Sometimes parents just don't get you, you know, as a kid, Mm -hmm. there's always like that thing you're really into, but they're just like, what? Don't do that. And like, (laughs) want to give advice, go be a doctor or like, you know, a lawyer or something. And like, what if I just want to be a video game developer, mom? Like, you know, (laughs) I think that can work for like anyone. So I felt like the story was really relatable and just fun. I love stand-up comedy. So I was really excited to see that type of humor in a middle grade contemporary. I know I mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but didn't actually dive in. Do you work very closely with your clients to kind of shape up their manuscript before reaching the editor or are you more a little bit more hands off? I definitely consider myself an editorial agent. I think you hear that term when you're talking to an agent who usually do a lot of like revisions with the authors before it goes to, you know, the editor or publisher. In this case, I read often the manuscripts that come to me many times before we both mutually, the author and I feel it's ready to go to an editor. And we'll be strategic about it too. You know, like I am looking for mostly big picture kind of developmental edits. I'm not going to necessarily do a lot of line edit or copy editing. That is the task of your publisher. But definitely like, you know, if I feel like, hey, this story needs better pacing or like, you know, this section needs a little bit more, you know, emotional oomph. Those are the type of comments I would make. What are you most excited about right now? Brief shout out to Roshni Chakshi, who hit the New York Times with her The Gilded Wolves yay. book this week. So yay, I'm super excited for that. Congratulations. She's awesome. She's so awesome. She is definitely awesome. I'm also super excited for Wicked Saints, which is the first of the Something Dark and Holy series by Emily Duncan, which is going to debut later this year. And there is also going to be Sanya Menon's, was it, there's something about sweetie which is a companion book to when Dibble met rishi which oh i'm my so excited about because it features ashish's brother as the main character and he's just so much fun and i love seeing her world and again like such a happy fun rom-com with a, a fat south asian heroine is really great to me oh my god i love her i had her and uh, rashni on the show and they're both amazing and i'm so (laughs) i'm so happy to hear that that her second one the companion book is coming out so congratulations to you as well i'm so excited for you thank you so much tal for your time please tell us where we can find you on social media on Twitter, I am at TalLay8. You can find me on Instagram, though I'm really bad at Instagram, guys. <laughs> I'm a total noob on it. But if you do want to see the occasional pictures of my hubby and books, um, I will be at Agent Tao. And that wraps up our episode with Tao Lei. 
Tao, thank you so much for educating us about the agenting world and giving such wonderful advice for our community. Our listeners are going to learn so much and really benefit from all of your wisdom. So a huge heartfelt thank you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Tao over on Twitter at TaoLay8, and that's the number eight. Don't forget, head over to Tao's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Tao-Lay to download three of Tao's favorite query letters that caught her eye. You'll also find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, some tweetable quotes, and the timestamps of highlights throughout the entire conversation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am beyond excited about our partnership with Four Sigmatic. Growing up with an Asian immigrant upbringing from both my Taiwanese roots and my Malaysian roots, I am all too familiar with eating and drinking herbs and roots in our teas and soups and even desserts. That's all super common in Chinese medicine where non-toxic plants, otherwise known as adaptogens, are believed to help our body like boosting the immune system and soothing muscle cramps to even improving brain function and alleviating anxiety. I found Four Sigmatic at a grocery store and immediately recognized the names of the different herbs and mushrooms I grew up having like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, and chaga. Four Sigmatic specializes in these herbal drinks that support our immunity, energy, and longevity and helps us live healthier, more enhanced lives. I'm honestly incredibly impressed at how creative they can get with their blends. I'm talking about infusing the superfoods into mainstream products including mushroom coffee, mushroom elixirs, hot cacaos, matcha, superfood blends, and this makes it really accessible to those of you who've never tried them before. I know there's a ton of you coffee drinkers in our community, so you're gonna love their mushroom coffee with lion's mane that, get this, supports productivity, focus, and creativity. I even read that lion's mane have been used by Buddhist monks for thousands of years to help focus during meditation. I could not recommend a more perfect drink to switch out your usual go-to morning drink to kickstart the day with super focused writing sprints, for example. The mushroom coffee with lion's mane is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans and tastes just like coffee. All of their drinks are super easy to make. Just rip open their single-serve packets, add hot water, and voila! All right, I'm going to stop right here because I can go on. So head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea and explore all their different products. I am super pumped they created a special offer of 15% off for our storytellers. Head over to foursigmatic.com slash 88 cups of tea or use discount code 88 cups of tea at checkout. Thank you for supporting a brand that believes in the future of 88 Cups of Tea. And I want to hear what you think about the drinks. So tag me at 88 Cups of Tea to let me know. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.